Hi, everyone. It's Ashley. Each week here on the deck, you hear raw interviews from family members and investigators who are looking for answers to cases that, for whatever reason, remain unsolved. But unsolved crimes are often unsolved for a reason. Time has cracked and curved around some of these cases for so long that getting answers has become complicated. Well, now, investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra is turning back the clock to look at an unsolved case from 1991. She's speaking to investigators, key witnesses, and loved ones who are still searching for answers on how exactly 27-year-old Douglas Wagg Jr. died. But here's the thing. While Delia's investigation for this season of Counterclock started as a look into one man's suspicious death, a string of crimes and other mysterious deaths point to so much more. Tune in each week for new episodes of Counterclock Season 6 wherever you listen to podcasts. Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. Engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of the mystery, danger, and romance. Where will each new chapter take you? With hundreds of mind-teasing puzzles, the next clue is always within reach. You can also chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Love is more than a day on the calendar or a sign-off on a letter. Love starts with you. Show off your personal style with new Pandora jewelry pieces that radiate with your love from every angle. With Pandora's vast selection of rings, bracelets, earrings, necklaces, and charms, there's endless ways to show what's in your heart. Write a love note to yourself or your best friend with handwritten charms or a personal engraving. Shop now at Pandora.net. Pandora. Be love. Our card this week is Mary Frankie Harvey, the Jack of Hearts from Massachusetts. 42 years have passed since Frankie was left for dead in a southeastern Massachusetts gravel pit. Frankie's case is unique in a lot of ways, but one reason is because her story straddles the state line of Rhode Island, where she was last seen alive, and Massachusetts, where her body was found, which complicated the investigation from the get-go. And while her case is still unresolved today, recent discoveries have revealed major breakthroughs that have investigators truly on the cusp of solving her murder. I'm Ashley Flowers, and this is The Deck. November 29, 1980, was a gray, cool day in the small town of Rentham, Massachusetts. It was the Saturday after Thanksgiving, and the day had been pretty quiet around town. Until that afternoon, when Rentham Police Dispatch got a call. 
it was close to 3 or 3.30 in the afternoon, they received a call from the media inquiring as to uh, where the body was located on Route 1. Rentham Police Detective James Barrett said the dispatcher responded to the reporter's call with a question. What body? The reporter said they heard on scanner traffic that law enforcement was responding to a sand pit area in Rentham because someone had discovered a woman's body. But Rentham police had no idea what was going on, so a sergeant and an officer drove out to Route 1, and to their surprise, they found Massachusetts State Police and local media gathering in a gravel pit just off the highway. So the reports describe a somewhat chaotic crime scene. So uh, it's indicated in multiple reports that there appeared to be between 8 and 12 vehicles in the crime scene area, like a mix of media vehicles as well as uh, state police cruisers. When Rentham PD approached, a lieutenant with the state police said that they'd gotten a call from a property owner of the sand and gravel excavation company around there at around 1 p.m. The caller said he found a woman who appeared to have been shot and killed. The lieutenant said that state police responded and had been roping off the area when reporters started showing up. Now, right away, there was tension at the scene with Rentham police and the state police because both were claiming ownership of the crime scene. Massachusetts is set up where the state police head up the state's criminal investigations on most occasions, but it's not exactly black and white, and this scene was one of those gray areas. So the Rentham officers radioed back to the station and told their chief of police and a detective to join them at the scene to better assess the situation. Once the chief of police got there, he took a closer look at the woman, the very young woman. She was fully clothed and lying on her back in the gravel area. She appeared to be in her teens, maybe early 20s tops. There were shell casings near her body, and the chief of police also observed tire marks close by. But because of all the cars at the crime scene, he couldn't tell if they were relevant or not. One of the shell casings even had a distinct footprint over it. But by the time Rentham PD was there, state police said that they had already taken photos and were done processing the crime scene. The woman didn't seem to have any ID on her, so police knew that they needed to try and identify her through other means. While she was being taken away for autopsy by the local funeral home, Rentham police set out to do an initial canvas. There wasn't much in the gravel pit area besides a parking lot next door where long-haul truckers sometimes parked and a place called Mike's Truck Stop across the highway. So officers started there. They asked truck drivers if anyone had seen anything or heard any gunshots. And they asked truck stop employees and customers if anyone had seen the young woman or if they noticed anything out of the ordinary. When they didn't get any helpful information, they spent the rest of the afternoon and night working their way up and down Route 1, stopping at every diner and bar looking for possible witnesses. But every stop they made, they struck out. No one remembered seeing the woman, who they were describing as white and petite with long brown hair, maybe between 17 and 20 years old. The next day, November 30th, an autopsy was performed at Ross's funeral home in Rentham. Nowadays, bodies in the area are usually taken back to Boston for examinations. But in 1980, at least in this case, the medical examiner actually went to the private funeral home and did the autopsy there. Now, before the autopsy even really got underway, the Emmy discovered something strange in the girl's pocket that police missed at the scene. It was a note. The note was dated November 24th and addressed to someone named Frankie. The letter said, quote, Hey kid, 
How's life treating you? How's Ruth? Right now, I'm listening to the radio and writing to you. It's 10.28 p.m. Has Paula been working lately? Hope your Thanksgiving day is okay. I'm sure mine will be. Well, I really have nothing to say, but I finally made it home. Sorry this is so short and sloppy. Sharon. End quote. The Emmy set the letter aside to give to police later, and they continued on. At some point, a dentist was called to examine her teeth, which were in great condition, and it was the dentist who discovered something else interesting. This woman was no woman at all. She was probably just a girl, likely much younger than investigators had assumed. After the autopsy, the Emmy ruled it a homicide by gunshot wound. Detective Barrett, who's working the case today, asked us to keep the specifics, like where on her body she was shot under wraps. But he did say that the bullets they extracted during the autopsy were helpful to the investigation. So at that point, two 45 caliber bullets were recovered from her body that were consistent with the shell casings that were recovered at the scene, which I think would lead one to believe that she was probably shot there at that scene. The girl's body didn't have any other signs of trauma. And I know you're all wondering if the Emmy was able to determine whether or not the girl had been sexually assaulted. But the thing is, we were asked not to disclose information specific to those findings. But here is what I can tell you. Even though it was 1980, biological evidence was recovered during the autopsy and preserved. And other evidence, like the bullets and clothing, were sent to the state crime lab in Boston right after the examination. Now, while they waited for any kind of analysis to come back, Rentham police were checking out the letter that was in the girl's pocket. Could this young girl be the Frankie that this note was addressed to? They checked missing persons reports to see if there were any missing Frankies or any names that Frankie could be short for, like Francis or Francine, but they turned up nothing. So police started contacting high schools and colleges in the area to see if any students by that name were missing. It was tricky timing because most schools were on Thanksgiving break, but police were grasping at straws, trying to do anything they could think of to find out who this girl was. They knew that they were missing out on valuable investigative time simply by not knowing this girl's name. On December 2nd, to try and redeem themselves for the chaotic crime scene, state police and Rentham police had a sit-down meeting, and the case was formally assigned to Rentham detective John Barrett and Massachusetts State Trooper Joseph Brooks. The two were told to work the case together from that point forward. And as a quick side note, the detective that you're hearing from in this episode, James Barrett, that's John Barrett's son. So the OG detective on this case in 1980 was James's dad. James was just a kid when this happened, but he remembers his dad coming home and showing him a crime scene photo of the girl who'd been shot, hoping maybe he knew her, which just goes to show you how desperate police were to identify her. And he kind of held it up. It was very shocking because I don't think even at 11, I'd even seen what a dead person was. And he's like, do you recognize this girl? So you could almost sense the desperation in him when, you know, when you're showing a picture of a dead person to your 11-year-old and 12-year-old, because my older brother is a year older, to see if we recognize her. It must have been pretty worrisome for him that they didn't know who she was. That's never left me. It was traumatic. James and his brother did not recognize the girl in the photo. As a last resort, police finally decided to turn to the press to see if the public could help identify her. 
The funeral home cleaned her up, and they took a tight close-up photo of just the girl's face, with her eyes closed and her brown hair splayed out behind her. And that photo was released to the media, along with a detailed description of her clothing on December 3rd. Now, they didn't feel good about releasing a photo of a young dead girl to the public, but they felt as if they had tried everything else by that point. Two local newspapers, the Rentham Sun Chronicle and the Woonsocket Call, ran the photo and the information police provided. They reported that the girl was about 5 foot 3, 115 pounds with brown hair and brown eyes, wearing a waist-length brown jacket with raglan sleeves. They reported that she was also wearing a Ketchikan brand quilted maroon blouse under the jacket. And they even released the size and brand of her bra, hoping that regional clothing makers might remember her as a customer and come forward. The other thing police gave to the media were the details of the letter found in the girl's pocket. They were hoping someone could give them a lead on who Frankie was or even the letter writer, Sharon. And the media attention paid off, and people started calling in with ideas about who the girl might be. Police spent a few days running down the tips, but ultimately came up with nothing. Finally, on December 7th, a week after she was found, Rentham police got a call from someone saying, that girl in the newspaper? I think that's my niece, Frankie Harvey. The living room is where you make some of life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. Take it from someone who has made the mistake. And I should have freaking known better because in our very first house, we got a sectional from Ashley's store. And it was amazing. So beautiful, withstood a lot. I mean, Chuck is absolutely invited on all the furniture, but you couldn't tell. And that couch, after years of service, then supported our lazy butts during COVID when we binge watch show after show after show. Not even so much as an indent in my favorite cushion. Long story short, when we moved houses, I was like, oh, I'll get a new couch. It costs more money. It must be better. No, I hate it. It looks like we've had it for a zillion years. Meanwhile, the Ashley couch is still thriving at my brother's place. And as if their stuff wasn't quality before, the new high-performance furniture from Ashley Store is somehow even better. It's designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Listen, I have corrected all of my mistakes, and we now have their new high-performance durable furniture. I got it in this beautiful shade of blue. I got some chairs. Love them, love them, love them. So whether you're hosting and toasting or just enjoying furry friends, you can relax knowing you have the durability and convenience of Ashley Store's newest assortment of high-performance furniture. Shop the life-resistant, high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Busy parents have enough on their plates without adding your children's homework to the list as well. IXL is an excellent resource for homework help, which is especially nice for parents who are rusty on school info themselves. And methods have changed over the years, too. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. It's designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way with positive feedback. And you get one site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. There's a reason why IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Backed by research, kids using IXL are scoring higher on tests. From studies done in almost every state in the country, the kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. If your child is struggling, this is the smartest investment you can make. A month of IXL costs less than an hour of tutoring, so now you could get your child the help they need at an affordable price. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. 
And the deck listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash deck. Visit IXL.com slash deck to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Frankie Harvey's uncle was calling from Pawtucket, Rhode Island, which is just 25 minutes south. As he went on to describe his niece, there was little doubt in anyone's mind that they finally had a match. Not just because his description was spot on, but because he said they were supposed to spend Thanksgiving Day with her, but she was a no-show, and nobody in their family had seen her in a while. There was just one discrepancy. Her uncle said that Frankie was only 13, which was way younger than anyone had even guessed. And you might be wondering why a 13-year-old's family hadn't reported her missing after going weeks without seeing her. But the answer was, she had been reported missing. Here's the whole story that her uncle told police. He said that Frankie had been staying at a girl's home called the Marathon House in Providence, Rhode Island. And her uncle and his wife, Frankie's aunt, were supposed to pick her up from that house on Wednesday, November 26th. She was going to stay that night, have Thanksgiving dinner with them on Thursday, and then stay through the whole weekend before going back on Monday. Detective Barrett said that the aunt and uncle were looking forward to spending time with Frankie over the holiday. But on Wednesday, before they left to go get her, their phone rang. They had received a call from Marathon House not to come pick her up because she had run away. They were told she was missing in action. They didn't know where she was and to not waste their time coming to pick her up because she wasn't there. Frankie's uncle told police that she had only been living at Marathon House for a week, maybe two, and had just been placed there after running away from a different youth home. On the phone that day, the staff at Marathon House told her uncle not to worry because they had already reported Frankie missing to police in Providence, per their policy. Since Frankie took off on her own pretty often and always showed back up, nobody thought much of it at the time. And that missing persons report that was filed in Providence didn't make it onto Rentham Police's radar when they were first trying to identify her because they were checking reports from Massachusetts, not Rhode Island. And just so you know, Rentham, Massachusetts is only about 40 minutes north of Providence, Rhode Island. But because they're in two different states, there was a bit of a barrier when it came to information sharing. And Providence is a bigger metro area. So while sleepy little Rentham is just 25 miles up the road, it sort of feels like a world away from Providence. Rentham police immediately drove to Providence to tell Frankie's mom about her death. Unfortunately, there aren't any reports to tell us what her mom's reaction was or what she said. And there are no written reports to explain Frankie's relationship with her mom or any explanation as to why Frankie wasn't living at home with her. And police say that she's since passed away. But Frankie's little brother, Michael Harvey, who was just six years old at the time, was absolutely gutted over the news of his sister's death. Michael told our reporting team that Frankie was more than a big sister. She mothered him, and the two were as close as two siblings can be. She was my best friend. Are you kidding me? She, she got me dressed. She gave me breakfast. She got me to go to school. The last memory I have is me holding her onto the casket and people trying to pull me away. That's what hurts. That's what hurts the most. He just took my best friend away from me, and my life went to afterwards. My arms weren't big enough to go around the whole casket, but I was holding on. I was holding on. I wouldn't let go. Um, it wasn't supposed to happen this way. 
Her family members told police Frankie was a bright light and fiercely independent and brave for her age. They said she was trusting of people and she often hitchhiked different places. Some relatives said she'd been enrolled in a school for a while but got kicked out for possibly selling pills. It became clear to police that Frankie might not have had the best home life and was trying to make it on her own at the young age of 13. While her extended family, like her aunts and uncles, would try and keep her out of trouble, she was hard to keep track of, bouncing from youth home to youth home. Which is why, when they interviewed the employees at Marathon House, it didn't reveal a ton about her. Employees told police that Frankie had been staying there less than two weeks, so no one had really gotten to know her yet. It's really unclear. Her existence is something of a mystery because, again, she never stayed anywhere long enough for people to establish a meaningful friendship with her. They did find out that Frankie was known to hang out with a couple of other residents who were a little older than her, closer to 16. None of them were Sharon or even knew who Sharon might be, but they did learn something from their conversations with these girls. One of them said that they'd seen her around the time that she went missing. I believe the Federal Hill area of Providence, where um, I guess a lot of kids that were just out and about looking for trouble and just looking to party or whatever would hang around at all hours of the night. Interestingly, one of the witnesses that had seen her said that she had seen her in the early morning hours of Thanksgiving Day, between 2 and 5 o'clock in the morning, in um, this area of Providence, just outside talking to people in through car doors, just talking to people with another girl. The girl said that she specifically remembered Frankie being there because she sort of stuck out since she was several years younger than everyone else who hung around that area. And because what she was wearing stood out. She was wearing a, a light coat, I think, in jeans or corduroy pants, but not something that it looked like it was too cold to be wearing what she was wearing. And that when they asked if she was okay when they drove by, she said, she's fine, she's just waiting for somebody. Unfortunately, the girl didn't know who Frankie was waiting for. So detectives set out to talk to the other teenagers who ran in the same circle. And another one of the girls who was friends with Frankie had more information. The girl told police that she was at Federal Hill with Frankie when two guys picked up both of them. She wasn't sure if it was November 26th or 27th, and she also wasn't sure what time it was. But she said that she and Frankie cruised around with these guys aimlessly for a little while, and eventually this girl asked the guys to take her home to her mom's house in Pawtucket. The girl said that when the guys dropped her off at her mom's house, she went inside to ask her mom if Frankie could stay the night, but her mom said no. So she went back outside and told Frankie that she couldn't stay over. And so Frankie left with the guys. That was the last contact that anyone had with Frankie. So who were these guys? The girl didn't know their names. And there's very little information in old reports to tell modern day investigators who they were or how police identified them. But investigators eventually did find them and interview them, and as far as Detective Barrett can tell, they were cooperative and ruled out as suspects. It's unclear. I think that, again, the leads of who Frankie and, and her friend were with led to nothing. Like, I don't believe that they were necessarily suspects. I think they were initially, but I think that there were enough details given that they had been re-interviewed. They were definitely re-interviewed. But beyond that, I think that the story is just kind of checked out. 
Police were really worried about their lack of investigative leads at this point in the investigation. It seemed like everyone they interviewed and every corner they turned led to nothing. But then police got a tip from someone who said that they should be looking for a guy who went by the nickname T-Man. The tipster said T-Man was involved with a lot of younger girls from Marathon House. He had a reputation for trafficking the girls. Now, the tipster didn't say that Frankie was being trafficked, but they knew that Frankie hung out with the girls who definitely were victims of T-Man because the tipster herself said that she had been introduced to T-Man by Frankie. Just that she knew T-Man, she knew who he was, and that um, he was a bad guy, that he had he carried a gun under his front seat of his car, that he would drop girls off at houses and wait outside while they went in to have sex with clients. And uh, a lot of it was done in just in exchange for drugs. This tip sent police on a wild goose chase over the next few months because nobody seemed to know T-Man's real name or even what he looked like or what kind of car he drove. The only information they were able to get about T-Man was that he was white and maybe in his 20s. They went everywhere and tried to track this person down. No one really had a lot of information. And I think we also have to bear in mind, a lot of these interviews were of young teenagers that were intoxicated at the time when they had interactions with T-Man. There was also the possibility that people were scared of T-Man. But the path to finding or even identifying him went nowhere. And over the next few months, police still hadn't gotten any helpful information from the evidence they'd sent to the state lab. So by 1981, the investigation into Frankie's murder went cold. Detectives retired, other murders took precedence, and years flew by. But detectives were forced to look square at Frankie's case again 13 years after her murder, when someone, completely out of the blue, sent a letter to the Rentham Police Department with a tip. The letter said Frankie was last seen with a pimp named Johnny at a truck stop one town over from Rentham right before she was killed. The tipster said that her body was then dumped in Rentham and Johnny, the pimp, was later murdered in Pawtucket. This obviously reignited uh, a flurry of activity on the case, however... His lack of knowledge of the, the details of the Mary Harvey homicide basically led detectives to believe that it was just a made-up story uh, for the purpose of either doing harm to other individuals or for whatever reason. Even though police basically decided this letter writer was a liar, it was enough to spark some new interest in Frankie's case. A detective at the time decided to try and re-interview old witnesses and go back through old reports. He even submitted a 15-page questionnaire to VICAP, the FBI's violent crime apprehension program that identifies similarities in cases. But nothing came from it, and Frankie's case went back on the shelf. Until 1998, when Frankie's little brother, Michael, who was in his 20s by then, called to ask if they were any closer to catching his sister's killer. Michael said losing his sister ruined him, and he called police because he wanted to at least know if someone in power was still trying to do something about it. He said for years he would think about all the things Frankie was missing out on, all the memories that he was making that he would have shared with his big sister, and all the firsts that she didn't get to have. She never had a family. She never got to to have anything. Nothing. 
not a chance for a boyfriend, not for a chance to have kids, not to have grandkids, have a career, have a life. Nothing. Fuck. Like that. And you know what? It took mine, too, because I had no ambition. I had no stride in life. Michael's call prompted the Rentham PD to take a hard look at Frankie's case again. And this time, they submitted the biological evidence which had been preserved for all these years to see if they could generate a DNA profile. Everyone had their fingers crossed and was literally, you know, on the edge of their seat, hoping that if this DNA profile was good enough, it could be instrumental in helping us to identify a suspect or or at least a person of interest. But the technology wasn't advanced enough back then, and the evidence didn't produce enough markers to be submitted to the national database. But it did produce a partial profile that they submitted to the Massachusetts State Database. Which was, you know, problematic, clearly. Mary Harvey, you know, was identified as someone from Providence, Rhode Island, and that the person who murdered her may not even be from Massachusetts or have a profile in the Massachusetts database. They never got any hits in Massachusetts. Even after the years passed, nothing popped up. So in 2018, Detective Barrett decided to take a look at the case and see if there was anything worth re-examining using more advanced technology. I think I was just curious about it. I think, you know, going back through my time as a police officer and my recollection, this is a case that kind of was always just sitting on the shelf in the Rentham Records room. And knowing that my dad had worked on it, my dad passed away in 99, but I know that it always troubled him that they were never able to solve this case. And um, I figured, you know, I don't know how many years I have left on the department. Like, you know, maybe it's time now where technology is improved to at least take a look at the case again. So it was just kind of on my mind. It's always been in the back of my mind, but I think I figured I'd just make a phone call and find out. Detective Barrett called the state crime lab in Boston to ask if the DNA evidence from the Frankie Harvey homicide could be enough per modern standards to submit to CODIS. While he waited for that, Detective Barrett got a call from Michael, who was again inquiring to see what progress had been made in his sister's case. So I was able to tell him, no, we're actually, we just started looking at your sister's case again. And he just, he started bawling. This was good news for Michael, which was followed by more good news. The state crime lab reanalyzed the DNA evidence and was actually able to get enough markers this time to submit it to CODIS. But two steps forward, one step back. There were no matches in the national database once it was submitted. But the case was heating up again. Detective Barrett teamed up with a detective from the Massachusetts State Police, Dave DeChico, to read all of the reports associated with Frankie's murder. And deep in the file, they came across a really interesting ballistics report that changed what Detective Barrett thought he knew about Frankie's case. I can remember sitting in my high school Spanish class, looking down at the ground, just hoping, desperately hoping, I wouldn't get called on. Because languages have never come easy for me. And even after all those years of studying in school, I felt so insecure. Then as my husband and I started exploring international travel recently, he convinced me that it was time to give language another try. So naturally, we found Rosetta Stone, the most trusted language learning program. It's available on desktop or can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone offers 25 languages and they have a true accent feature that gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing your words. 
As my family continues to explore future travel, I know I'm going to take advantage of that because I want to feel as confident and respectful as possible. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the Deck listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com deck. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com deck today. When it comes to your health, there should be no compromises. Don't go back to that doctor who doesn't fully listen to you or rushes through your appointment. Instead, check out ZocDoc. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. Search by location, availability, and insurance. No compromises. And these doctors all have verified reviews from actual real patients. And you don't have to wait forever to get in with someone good. When I looked online, the typical wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is between just 24 and 72 hours. That's it. You can even score some same-day appointments. Go to ZocDoc.com deck and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash deck. ZocDoc.com slash deck. Get this. So apparently, way back in like 1982, another man was killed with the same weapon that killed Frankie. So you got to get a load of this story because it is a strange connection that I can't quite wrap my head around. So on October 3rd, 1982, an officer with Pawtucket Police Department was dispatched to a sand and gravel pit for a car that had been abandoned. The officer went to check it out and ran the registration of the Oldsmobile, which came back to a Providence, Rhode Island man named Frank Cannon. The officer looked around the immediate area and didn't see anyone, so he tried to find Frank by going to his listed address, but no one answers the door. The officer was able to track down Frank's sister, though, and she said that she hadn't seen her brother that day, but she would be on the lookout for him. Pawtucket Police cold case detective Susan Cormier said after a few hours, Frank's sister decided to round up some relatives and go check things out for themselves. Later on, his sister and sister-in-law responded out there to go find the car. And they had a couple of other family members and friends with them, and they kind of spread out, calling out his name, looking for him. And the sister-in-law ended up finding him in the bushes a little ways away. Frank was dead with several obvious bullet wounds. When officers were called to the scene, they found a shell casing and blood on the ground. They also observed what looked like drag marks, making them wonder if whoever shot Frank had killed him near his car and then dragged him to the bushes. Police interviewed Frank's sister, who said that her brother worked at the Urban League in Providence as a counselor and that he was actively involved in a local political campaign. And interestingly, Frank's sister said that this was not the first time Frank had been targeted. She said that the year prior, in 1981, Frank had been abducted by two men who shot him multiple times, but he survived the attack. The only problem was Frank refused to tell police who shot him. He was even hospitalized after the shooting, but Frank would not give up a name or even a reason for the shooting. 
Now, when they sent the shell casings from his scene to Boston to get analyzed, the ballistics analyst said with 100% confidence that the gun that killed 33-year-old Frank Cannon in Rhode Island was the same gun that killed 13-year-old Frankie Harvey in Massachusetts. Now, at the time, it seems like nothing was done about it. Or if police in both Rentham and Pawtucket did get together to further investigate how the murders were connected, it wasn't documented in any reports. You would think, but it it doesn't appear based on the reports that we have that that was done. But I think that's because at the time, they just couldn't fathom how they could be connected. Like on paper, as far as victimology goes, Frank Cannon and Frankie Harvey had nothing in common. Different genders, different races, different ages, different hometowns, different lifestyles. I mean, the only thing that the crime scenes had in common, besides the bullets, were the locations. Even though they were in different states, both Frank and Frankie were shot and killed in gravel pits. Also, kind of weird that both of their names are similar, right? I mean, like, no one brings this up, and I'm sure it has nothing to do with it, but it stands out to me. But at the time, police in Pawtucket had started leaning into a theory that Frank Cannon's murder was connected to organized crime, mostly because of his political work. And listen, him being so closed lip about who was trying to kill him the first time around, that's got funny business written all over it. I think Frank was scared of people. But as far as Frankie goes, how could a 13-year-old girl be caught up with a crime family? So Detective Barrett thinks investigators at the time might have just dismissed the ballistics connection as a coincidence, like maybe it was a street gun that got tossed around. Whether or not there'd be an organized crime connection to the murder of a 13-year-old girl in Rentham, I don't know if they would have made that connection, if that would have actually been connected, or if the investigators at the time really gave it much thought. You know, I don't know. But fast forward to 2018 when Barrett comes across this report, and he doesn't buy it as a coincidence. I contacted the cold case detective down in Pawtucket because I don't believe really in coincidences. There's a connection. Detective Cormier took Detective Barrett's call, and they all agreed that the gun connection was worth investigating further. I wasn't even aware of the case in Rentham with uh, Mary Frances Harvey until sometime last year when I started working with Jim Barrett from Rentham and Dave DeChico uh, from the Mass State Police. I mean, there's certainly some interesting facts on both cases that, you know, shows that type of connection. We're just trying to connect the dots. One of the first things they did was process of elimination. Now that they had the DNA profile from Frankie's crime scene, they wanted to test Frank Cannon's DNA against it. And through a family member's sample, they were able to rule him out, at least forensically as a suspect in Frankie's murder. There is always those missing puzzle pieces, and I've said many times, cold case like this is like somebody handing you a puzzle and dumping it out on the table and taking away the box with the picture on it. And some of those pieces may have fallen, you know, where you just try and put it all together and the best that you can. In this puzzle, there are a few missing pieces. First, the gun has never been found. Second, motive. Police can't say in either case what made Frankie or Frank targets. Frank Cannon had his wallet and cash on him, so police knew that it hadn't been a robbery. It's very hard to say because while we can say the same gun killed both people, who pulled the trigger is a lot more difficult to prove. So depending on 
how this goes with all of the different theories. You know, you have people saying, well, there was the mafia. Well, could it be a racial thing? Well, he worked, you know, as a counselor here. It's finding out what the, what the motive for each one of them was to see who, who was the trigger person. The pandemic severely delayed the collaboration on the cases. But a week after our reporting team was in Massachusetts and Rhode Island for this episode, Detective Cormier, Barrett, and DeChico finally got together to compare notes. At the meeting, they made a to-do list. They're now working with Parabon Nano Labs to put together a snapshot of the suspect in Frankie's case. And they're using genealogy databases to see if they can get any familial matches to a possible perpetrator. The team's also getting creative to try and look at other avenues. They're doing archival research to see if there are any old records of residents who stayed at Marathon House back when Frankie lived there who were never interviewed. Because even today, they still don't know who Sharon is, the person who wrote that letter to Frankie. In addition to that, they're doing some boots-on-the-ground investigative work just trying to find T-Man's real name, which, of course, is where you come in. I think T-Man is definitely, if there's any of your listeners that are from this area that are old enough to maybe have been around the Providence area, if they recognize that name, would definitely... I think he's a pivotal person in this investigation. If he wasn't that much older, the likelihood that he may still be alive, if not incarcerated, is pretty high. I mean, it's been 42 years, but, you know, we can keep our fingers crossed. If there are people that listen to the podcast in Providence, Rhode Island, that area that may have lived there in the 80s, they may recognize that nickname. Oh, I knew that guy. You know, he he was a bad dude who was constantly at Federal Hill. And, you know, that would definitely be helpful. This is a very solvable case. Whether a match gets generated in CODIS or a familial hit comes from their new genealogy efforts or a significant tip comes in, it is just a matter of time. So if you have any information that you think could help detectives close this case for good, please speak up. There are three different detectives from three different agencies who right now would love to hear from you. If you have any information about Frank Cannon's 1982 murder, call the Rhode Island Cold Case Tip Line at 877-747-6583. Or if you know anything about Frankie Harvey's 1980 murder, please call the Rentham Police Department at 508 508- 384-2121. Or you can call the Massachusetts State Police at 855-627-6583. Their families deserve justice. Michael Harvey deserves to know what happened to his big sister. That's all I'm really looking for is the answer. The reason why. What's What was the whole reason why I'm killing her? What was so bad that you had to kill my sister for? What did she know? 40 years, I have not given up one day. Every day I think about her, every day I I cry about her. I'm not giving up. The Deck is an audio chuck production with theme music by Ryan Lewis. To learn more about The Deck and our advocacy work, visit thedeckpodcast.com. So, what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve?